Welcome to another episode of Blindness No Barrier, a memoir of David Blythe. I am John Coleman and this is the fourth of a series of interviews focusing on different aspects of the remarkable life of David Blythe. It will cover the key aspects of David's life that made him the person that he is, with a particular focus on the pivotal role David played in the development of human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. The episodes are produced by myself and edited by Robert Love. The music is by the very talented Jeff Irvin, and I appreciate the support of Blind Citizens Australia in the promotion of this memoir. We begin this episode with an interview of Euclid Heary, asking him to share his own insights into David and to reflect on some of his major achievements. Firstly, welcome Euclid, and thank you for being a part of David's memoir. I wouldn't have missed it, John. Uh, it, this is a command performance. Um, thank you. To help create a sense of context, could you please tell us how you know David, and in what ways you've worked with him? Well, I met David in New York, I think, in 1986, at a World Blind Union meeting, um, and uh, for the following 30 years, uh, as quickly as that has gone, uh, and, uh, we uh, worked together at the, uh, internationally through the World Blind Union, and uh, then became, uh, over time, uh, very close friends, uh, and uh, that uh, you know, association endures. I've been seeing David for four years. But I have to say that uh, we could meet in the bar tonight and it would be the same conversation we had in Bangkok uh, four years ago. Um, at that time, uh, David was uh, deeply involved uh, in uh, East Asia Pacific with the World Blind Union in that region. Uh, for me, I had taken over running the CNIB in Canada and was quite, quite a... Uh, well, a neophyte, certainly in international work. So uh, I think through David, who became really uh, a mentor, as it were, and then in 1996, when he came to Toronto for the Assembly of the World Blind Union, the year I was elected president, and uh, followed on his term when he'd been elected in Cairo in 1992. So I would say over those years, uh, I watched David uh, uh, in probably 20, 30 countries, uh, and in Australia, and in Canada, and uh, I, would, I would put his life passions into two or three boxes. Uh, one would certainly be his friends and his family. Uh, not far from that would be his passion uh, about the World Blind Union. And the third one would be his, his uh, enduring passion, uh, which continues with golf. Uh, so, John, if you think that David has been, in fact, he outranks me in the Order of Australia because he's an officer. Uh, I'm a member of the Order of Canada. 
He also, in the year 2000, at my assembly, uh, outgoing president of the World Blind Union at your old and wonderful town hall in Melbourne, uh, we gave David uh, the first Louis Braille medal ever presented. It's only given every uh, every uh, four years when the World Blind Union Assembly uh, is in session. And uh, so there's only going to be 25 in a century. Uh, I'm proud to say that some years later I received the same award. But I'm fond of saying, John, that there's only ever one first. And David uh, and Pedro Zurita were the first two recipients. They made an exception that year. So when you, if you look at just those two honors, and there are others, um, you really don't need to say much more. Uh, in the words of Shakespeare, we come not to bury David, but to praise him. On the other hand, uh, uh, praises, as I learned, is a bit like chewing gum. You should enjoy it, but you shouldn't swallow it. And David certainly never swallowed uh, his ego, his pride, and his accomplishments. Uh, if anything, uh, he shared them and uh, empowered, I would say, Uh, Euclid, I hope, though, you will say a little more, because, as you know, this podcast is focusing on David's role in establishing and promoting human rights for people with disabilities, both in Australia and worldwide. How do you see David's role in this, and how significant do you think it's been? Well, he he, he would not be a person uh, that would have had the the time of the patience for things like the United Nations and, and uh, endless commissions and, and committees and, and endless meetings. Uh, nor would David have been a person uh, who would have uh, written uh, things like the Charter of Persons uh, of, of, with Disabilities, the CRPD, that we're proud to have in the world. However, you can be an architect and you can be a creator and, and, and that's what David was. Uh, I mean, it, it, he wouldn't have worked in those kinds of, of ways, but the way that he would have worked was, A, by example, uh, because he, he was who he is. Uh, he, he was respected. Uh, I don't think he had an enemy anywhere. Uh, and he, he could influence people. Uh, people listened to what he had to say, and in his own way, he he could he could find the minds of people who had the time, the patience, and the way to, to do these things. So, uh, I would say that uh, David's influence uh, was working with people who were in those roles, uh, who influenced those kind of human rights and and and. Uh, uh, you know, he, he wasn't going to be the person that, that was going to make a motion, uh, uh, but he would be the person who would be the architect of, of what needed to be done. And, and he, was, he was fierce about that. He was, he was passionate and is passionate. And, and uh, uh, if he got a forum somewhere in the world, he took advantage of it. So, you know, these things don't come. The CRPD did not come about uh, without a lot of people, but it took 30 years. But it takes 30 years to get somewhere only if you have uh, men and women in the world 
like David that are willing to to see the the vision of the future, and that's what he did. And he, of course, blind people were his first passion. Women were his other passion, and and he, he you know, within the World Blind Union, he promoted things like the role of blind women, and uh, you know, to the extent that. Uh, the first woman to be the president, there are only nine of them in 30 years of the World Blind Union, uh, among 150 countries, was Marianne Diamond. But it would have been David's influence, not that Marianne needs much influence, but having said that, uh, she would have uh, benefited from that. And that just is one very solid example of, of how David got to where he wanted to be, to empower women, to, to believe in themselves and so on. Well, that's what he did with anybody he met. Now, in terms of Australia, I don't know, uh, but I do know this, that there would be a lot of ministers in the government of Australia uh, that would never have had the experience or the credibility that David had on the world stage. Uh, he knew and could face you know, 600 people in a room from 130 countries and get them on one page. And uh, we, we know that uh, that doesn't happen very often today, in, in any day in the, in the world. So he knew how these things work. And the people who sought leadership in a lot of these organizations uh, might have done better uh, to have got David's counsel and, and mentoring uh, they might have figured it out sooner, and some of them do, never did figure it out anyway. But David knew how it worked, and uh, so you know, from from his roots at the outback uh, to the stages of the world, yeah, he made a a large stride to empower people. You may have answered this question to some degree, but if you can choose just one thing that you found most impressive about David, what would that be? I'm, I'm sorry. If there was just one thing that you found most impressive about David, what would that one thing be? Oh, that's a very tough question. <laughs> um, it's going to take you ten podcasts to answer that. Um, yeah, what would be... You know, the one thing that, that, I, that I would... Uh, the, the story about David that you might ask him about uh, was in the year 1995 when the World Blind Union Assembly was to be held in Hong Kong and he was the president and we met in Italy with the officers and David came to the conclusion uh, and he was supported that the assembly should be taken away from Hong Kong it had been awarded to them to show you the the, the, the strength of, uh, and the guts of his decisions uh, he called them, and uh, the reason, by the way, he could tell you the reason it didn't go there, uh, that, that's a little more complex. But the fact was that for 15 years, uh, the leadership in Hong Kong, and especially the, the tourism board and, uh, and, and the uh, government people involved in the Association of the Blind and so on, uh, it haunted uh, the World Blind Union leadership because they refused to accept that you know anybody would have ever been able to make that kind of a decision and to to have I would you know to have really in a sense embarrassed uh, you know the the, the 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 colony of Hong Kong as it was then 
and and uh, all of what's related to his experience having worked in China, when he would know about people losing faith. And, you know, um, you have to admire a man who had the courage, or any person who had the courage, to say, this is the right decision, and I'm going to make the right decision, and I want the support of, of my officers, and, and, and he did, and the decision was final. The rest of it, it has to do with, uh, I suppose, uh, the loyalty to his family and to his friends. I mean, uh, David would be there uh, for, for you at any hour of any day, and uh, uh, he never took prisoners. And uh, there were, you know, with David, if, let me sum it up this way, John. Uh, if he was in a group, uh, he was surrounded by his friends. Some of them he would have characterized as dickheads, and then there were the rest. Now, Euclid, it's not as much fun just to talk about the good things about David. So this is the bit when I want you to say something about David that he doesn't want you to say. It could be something he said or did, that, or something he didn't say or do. I'm very happy with a bit of scandalous gossip about David, which may have no basis in reality. Well, yeah, <laughs> I've thought about that. Uh, and uh, they say there is no honor among thieves, but there probably is among friends. Um, you know, uh, it's a tough question because uh, David's private and personal life was really his. Um, and I don't live in Australia. Uh, when you meet for three days in some world forum, you have three days of fun and partying and, and, and uh, time in the bar and all that good stuff. Uh, day to day, and, and slugging it out, and, and his role at work, for example, uh, I would say he was probably quite bitter uh, that he didn't ever get promoted at the RVIB, but then he, he was a victim. I mean, he was in, a, in an organization in a country, uh, not unlike most countries in the world, that blind people uh, were never going to be promoted to CEO because they wanted sighted people. They didn't believe blind people could run organizations of and for the blind. So, you know, when, uh, you know David maybe never quite got over that. Uh, and, and, and I suspect that uh, that would be, you know, one of the things that, he, that, I, would, uh, that I would say that, uh, and, and, you know, he, he maybe should have left there and, and sought a career somewhere else. But what he did do is he made a left turn, a right turn, and decided he was going to work at the, at the international level. And that's where he built his reputation, and that's where he represented uh, Australia. The thing that, but the, when I went to Darwin, I understand David was living in Darwin when he lost his sight, and uh, apparently, he, if I remember the story, I mean, they're legends, uh, he had some, he was 10 or 12, he had some kind of a hand grenade that he'd found, decided to put it in a vice so he could open it, and I guess the rest is history, and he's been blind all his life. Well. I said to David, not very smart to put a hand grenade in the vice, David, and I'm sure he knows that better than the rest of us. I'm sure he would agree with you, Euclid. Euclid, yeah. thank you very much for your invaluable insights. Well, listen, uh, this is, as I said, uh, this, is a, this is a command performance. 
And uh, just just keep this in mind, though, John, when you're finishing with all of this good stuff about David. Um, just as a bit of an aside, uh, it always reminded me uh, many years ago when I lived in rural western Canada, I'd been a pallbearer at a little country church, and uh, we all came out waiting for the coffin to be brought out, uh, and, and uh, there was a group of us standing on the porch of the church, and there'd been a rather eloquent, overstated eulogy about the deceased. And uh, I remember one farmer making the comment, and I've quoted it more than once in those occasions, is he said, uh, well, that was quite a eulogy uh, about old Charlie. Is that the same son of a bitch that we knew? It's <laughs> a great story, okay. Euclid. So and, and, and keep in touch. So, David, where we left off last episode, you had um, finished up in your role at the RVIB um, and starting to uh, look at what your next career step was going to be uh, and investigating options um, in the um, mainstream employment. Um, I was wondering, can you tell us a little bit about um, the the next job you got and how you got it? Well, uh, of course, when I knew that I'd be leaving RVIB, I, I started to look around to see what opportunities there were. And one came up, it was a, a sales job with a company called Bond Brushes. They were a New Zealand company who operated in Melbourne. And uh, I applied to them for a, a job and... Uh, on my second interview, um, I, they offered me the job as a salesman. Um, it was interesting. I, it was on a Tuesday. I said to them, Monday's a holiday. I'll start Monday week. And they said, Monday's a holiday. Why not start Tuesday? So I think that's the first time in my life that anyone had really wanted me <laughs> to start work straight away. So I did accept that job. And uh, I worked with them for just over two years after which I started my own business, Kimmy Brush. Mm. Um, David, in terms of getting that position, there even today there are still very significant barriers to people with uh, who are blind or vision impaired getting into employment where employers may have doubts about people's capacity to do the job or is it going to be difficult in terms of making adjustments to, um, to how they work. And yet you've... This seems to be um, a position that you secured fairly quickly. Um, the You didn't find those sorts of uh, concerns or difficulties? It's interesting when one looks back on it because at the time I just sailed through and I didn't give it a thought. But I think back now, the uh, then principal, um, Mr Bonner, he, uh, he was over from New Zealand and the manager, Ben De Jong, was there. They were the two that interviewed me. Neither of them had ever had anything to do with a blind person before in their lives. Um, they'd never employed a blind person, and uh, to the best of my knowledge, they'd never even met one. Uh, and yet um, they were quite comfortable with me right from the start. Um, and Ben De Jong, when I did start, uh, went way out of his way to assist me in different sales techniques. I was doing my selling mostly on the telephone. I did a little bit of uh, door knocking, but uh, mostly it was on the telephone. And that's what I'd been doing at RVIB. And they'd never used that concept before, and they were prepared to try it. They were a small company, but uh, they were good in that regard. And as I say, uh, 
it was a learning curve for all of us and uh, we worked it out. So David, can you tell us a little bit about what your role was in the company and also how that worked out? I was a telephone salesman, that was my main role. I had a list of customers that had been developed and uh, I had to add to that list. I did some calling on customers but mostly it was uh, all on the telephone. At that time I used a long cane for travelling and I travelled from Moorabbin out to Brunswick daily. Whilst I was there, sometime afterwards, probably in the first 12 months, um, there was an upheaval in the company and the general manager, Mr De Jong, was dismissed and um, they brought in a new sales manager. The second guy wasn't as good as far as I was concerned as De Jong was because I worked very well with De Jong. But uh, he uh, was one of these guys that came from the direct selling industry and uh, he embezzled the company after a very short period of time. And uh, He embezzled funds? Funds, yes. Wow. And uh, he actually put the company in very serious um, debt um, and to such an extent that the New Zealand principals came over and were going to close the company. We had um, discussions, I raised some discussions with them because I did had re- developed a relationship with Pat Bonash and uh, I convinced them that um, I could get the company out of, out of debt and keep it going if they would give me the opportunity. And so they gave me three months to see how it went and see what we could do. Did you have to put your own money into that to no. some sort of security? No, nothing. Um, it was um, it was just a matter that uh, we had stock there and uh, they either took it back to New Zealand or had a fire sale or we sold it at the proper price. So there weren't they were the options. Sure. So uh, they gave me the opportunity. So the first thing I did was I went to each of our suppliers who had threatened not to supply us ever again. I told them the full story, I told them what had happened, I was honest with them and I said to them if you will um, still continue to trade with us I'll pay you COD and at the end of uh, any month when there's any money left over I'll send you something towards your your costs. Well they agreed with that uh, interestingly enough uh, and um, so um, after two months I was able to write out a number of cheques sent them off to the various companies and the principal of Seven Burn Brush Company at the time called me and said, David, what's this cheque? And I said, oh, well, I did tell you that I'd start paying off the debt. And he said, and he started to laugh. He said, you know, I didn't expect to see any money from you for quite a long time yet. But he said, uh, maybe you should have a talk. So I went and had a talk to him. And he gave me a, a good lesson on uh, how to manage um, control of funds that you must have cash flow in a business what I was doing at the as soon as the end of the month came I stripped everything we had and paid off the debt well I slowed that down a little bit but eventually I did pay the whole debt out of the company and uh, we developed a good relationship with all our suppliers and then the New Zealand company um, made a decision to sell half the company to a, a family that where the chap had just retired and he had they had some money not that he wanted to do anything with it but the two sons and the, his wife wanted to and so they bought a half share in bond brushes and um, 
and things changed from that point on because they'd had no experience ever in that sort of business. They wanted to micromanage the company. Um, they, uh, I don't think they were happy with me being the manager. Um, and uh, although my record was pretty good, and uh, so after a short period of time, I went to them and said, look, this is not working out. I'm sure they were happy to hear me say that. But I said to them, look, I'm not just uh, walking away from here. I'll be going into business, and part of the business I'll be going into will be in opposition with you, but uh, it'll only be a part of your business and part of my business. So, so uh, we left... Um, not in any unamicable, un- but not really pally-pally either. Uh, though, oddly enough, the guy they employed to replace me laid down the same rules that he had. Uh, he had total control, and he would give them a report every month and discuss it with them. And he and I actually became friends, uh, although we were sort of in sort of opposition to one another. The business was there. We had no problems, and uh, that worked out pretty well. So... David, perhaps you could give us a bit of a sense of where we are on the David Blythe timeline. You um, you left the RVIB in 1965. Um, so what um, what does this bring us to? 1967. So that's where you left Bond Brushes and um, you set up your own company. Yes, Kemi Brush was the company I set up and um, we I operated that company for 17 years. It um, was moderately successful. Uh, we, uh, I was able to educate my children and do things like that, and we paid our home off, and a number of things like that. But and uh, I was able to pursue my activities with the guild and other organisations through that period. And you were, your role was owner manager, so you would have had a number of salespeople working for you. At various stages, I had up to four. So it wasn't long after establishing Kemi Brushes and getting that up and running um, that you looked to join the board of the RVIB. Yes, in 1970, um, the Australian Guild of Business and Professional Blind and the Blind Workers Union decided that we really needed to run candidates for the uh, board of RVIB. The Guild selected me and uh, the Blind Workers Union selected their representative. We um, we started the campaign uh, and uh, became that we were going to run this, and we started probably in about June for an election in October. In the meantime, um, some of the executive of the RVIB met with the some of the executive from uh, Blind Workers Union and uh, put pressure on them to withdraw from the election. Uh, one of their members was an SB bookie at the RBIB, and uh, I think he was threatened that something would happen to him if uh, if that if they pursued. Would that have been um, an illegal thing oh, that they were doing? Very illegal at the time. Yes, was it? Yes, yeah. yeah and uh, yes, it wasn't until uh, many years later that uh, changed. So they really left themselves open to external yeah. pressure. Unfortunately, they they took it literally and um, became actually opposed to my election. The Blind Workers Union did. Yes, they did. It, it became an unfortunate period there for a while, and uh, but we persisted in the guild, and uh, uh, there was um, management um, 
laid down rules that the employees were not allowed to get involved. That was staff members were not allowed to get involved in the election, and uh, so uh, we we prevailed. But it was a quite a nasty election. The, the uh, board members, uh, particularly some of them, uh, very actively campaigned against me. Was a guy who at one time had been president of the Blind Workers Union, but had an operation and had got his sight back many, many years before and had left the blindness field and went into business and eventually was a board member at RVIB. But it was, um, as I said, it was a bitter election uh, We, uh, to such an extent that uh, the uh, then president insisted that we were handing out vote, out of vote cards. We had to be more than 20 feet away from the polling booth and every other thing you could think of. Uh, but fortunately... Um, we got the numbers and uh, we won convincingly because I did get a lot of support from the auxiliary ladies who were of the RVIB. The RVIB had a number of auxiliaries, particularly in country towns and also in the city, suburban, and uh, most of them, they had their meeting, they, most of them supported me and we had a resounding win really. Uh, and uh, it went on from there. Uh, it was quite a surprise, but we did it. Why do you think there was um, such strong opposition? Do you think it was a personal opposition? Did they see you as a threat? Was it uh, something threatening even to the board to have a blind person running for a position? I don't know. It, to me, um, there, there was a, an attitude in those days that you worked uh, with, for blind people, you didn't work with them. Uh, I was seen as a, an outsider. I wasn't part of the club in those days. You first had to be in the club to get onto those sort of boards. You know, most of them were in the Melbourne Club or the Australian Club. They were saw themselves as philanthropists. It's interesting if you look back on their history. I only know of one of them that ever left any money to the RVIB when they when they died, actually, and yet they'd been board members for many many years. That was a phenomenon. But it was one of those things that there was a them and us attitude and uh, I'd broken it uh, and uh, they didn't believe that I had that right, but I did and I was proven to be correct. Now you were the first blind person to be elected, but you weren't actually the first blind person to be on the board. No, uh, Professor Laurie McCready uh, uh, did stand in an election back in the late 50s and um, they lost that election. But many, or several years later, he was appointed to the board uh, because he was a lecturer at Monash University and a blinded ex-serviceman. And he he was a very good board member, actually. Uh, he and I worked very closely together. So um, we did create some change in the organisation, more in its attitude than anything else. But um, it, was, it was a hard slog. And if it hadn't have been for him, I'm sure that we wouldn't have got some of the changes through we eventually got through. I'll come back to the the issues and the changes mm. that you were um, mm. trying to implement. Mm. But you mention a guild and you talk about we winning the election, not me winning the election. Um, can you explain that a little bit? Well, the Australian Guild of Business and Professional Blind was um, an organisation set up in the, in the 50s, I think it was, 1950s, when um, because there was the only other organisation there were was the Blind Workers' Union and the predecessor of the Association for the Blind, that was a, a members' organisation that actually got taken over and the members lost their rights in that organisation that became an agency. So the then professional blind people, they were mostly teachers, mostly in music, 
but there were a few in other industries like physiotherapy and things like that got together and formed a guild as they called it um, so that they could advocate for people who had, had been to university or had higher education. Uh, it was interesting, I've never been to university and I didn't have a high education, but um, uh, a piano tuner, who of course in those days wasn't eligible to be in the Guild, left a, a significant amount of money to the Blind Workers' Union and um, the smart people in the Guild said, well, you know, there's people out there in business that got money and maybe they can support us. So they opened it up and became the Guild of Business and Professional Blind, whereas it used to be the Guild of Professional Blind. Um, they had a good concession too because they had a deal going with ANSET that airline, or a and originally, and then it became ANSET that you got two-for-one travel with them. If you were blind, you could take a guide for nothing. So there was a good reason to be a member of the Guild. So that, that privilege was just for Guild members? It was at that time, yes. Yeah. There was a similar one for blinded ex-servicemen, uh, which, which worked the other way. The blinded person got the free travel, and if they took a guide, the guide got part travel, I think. But anyway, so that was one of the reasons for people to join it. Yes. But uh, I joined it and um, became active um, because they were pretty good because by that time I was out of the Blind Workers' Union, and um, and uh, the, uh, so I had to be in something, and um, so I went to the Guild and I became their president eventually uh, and uh, they support. They were the ones who ran the campaign to get me elected and that's why I say we because it was a joint effort. Uh, the late Hugh Jeffrey was a very strong advocate. Uh, Barb Williams, who's still alive today, was another very strong worker at that time. There were a number of them that worked very hard. Dorothy Hamilton, the, the people that I can think of now, that worked very hard to get me elected to that board. Mm. So... It- Perhaps you could give us a bit of an idea as to what the um, what the major issues were that um, you were dealing with on the board. Well, in many ways, it was the general activities of the organisation. There were there were issues at the school that um, that people were unhappy about, and they knew about because they were teachers there, and they knew what was, some of the things were happening. There were issues dealing with rehabilitation. Hang on, I'm going to bring you back to that. You've you've suggested that there's there's this issue people know about, and you haven't told us what it is. So what was it? What was the thing at the school? Well, brutality uh, to children, uh, abuse of children. Uh, I'm actually quite surprised that there hasn't been some come out since. But... Um, there was a case of one child who was very severely injured and of course it was stated that he fell down the stairs. Well, the injuries were quite clearly that he hadn't fallen down the stairs. Because this was a boarding school, don't forget, that uh, it wasn't um, just the kids went there during the day. They lived in. And uh, we, we insisted on an inquiry into it and um, the inquiry did a whitewash, but we knew that that was incorrect. And at the time, Laurie and I actually considered the fact that whether we'd uh, resign and go to the Attorney-General with what we knew, but we didn't really have solid evidence. We had anecdotal evidence, but it was pretty strong, but it wasn't quite strong enough. And uh, so we decided not to do that. We'd try and fight it from within the organisation. I voted uh, clearly, and if I ever found the minutes, it would be there that I declared my vote totally opposed in the findings of the committee, which whitewashed everything. 
But it, what it did do is that we created in the board a much closer scrutiny of what was happening in the school. And although I have heard that there have been incidents since at times, but nothing to the same extent, and uh, some of the brutality that was being displayed to these kids was um, was done away with. Mm. And uh, it, it just came about that we were able to make closer and... Uh, they look more seriously at the type of people that they employed and then um, the school changed dramatically anyway. Do you think even if you'd left your positions on the board and taken it to the Attorney-General, from a political point of view, do you really think the Attorney-General would have wanted to go head-to-head with an esteemed organisation like the Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind? Oh, I think there have been a couple of phone calls made and, uh, yes, well, you know, these are hotheads, they're only causing trouble. Um, um, everything out here is perfect, we're looking after it and nothing would have been done. Sure, sure. So you also mentioned then um, about the closure of the rehab program. I was very much opposed to that. We had a residential rehabilitation program, the first one in Australia. It was working really well um, at that time, a lot of the blindness that was being caused was in motor accidents, mainly glass in the face. It was broken windscreens. We had a different type of windscreen in those days, long before the seat belts came in. And uh, this, instead of these people all just coming to work in the factory and having no training in anything, they were, they were trained in daily living, no trained in mobility. They got some employment training. A lot of them, went, most of them went out into open employment. It was a really good scheme, but uh, for some unknown reason the board thought it cost too much and uh, they decided not to go on with it. And uh, I was on the rehab committee at the time and the uh, president and the other member and my had the discussion and the vote was two to one to close it. Mine was the dissenting voice. I dissented with quite a few things actually. And... uh, so uh, I lost that one as well, but I was very disappointed about that and because uh, I thought that was something that we really did need and, and instead of closing it, we should have been expanding it. But unfortunately in, in Australia, we've got this attitude, a state attitude that um, everything is, uh, whatever is happening anywhere else is nothing to do with us and uh, we, we don't see ourselves as Australians when we come to providing services. and. It, it should have been providing rehab services Australia-wide. I mean, this was quite common in the United States and England and other parts of the world where people did travel to residential rehab centres and got proper training. But uh, we decided here that we know best and we don't do those things. So do you think for Australia it was a bit ahead of its time? Because certainly after significant social and government changes, those types of services um, become really the... The, the core of employment programs for people uh, who are blind or vision impaired? Well, you would think they are, but they're not really. We're, we're very superficial in our training here for blind people. Um, we have employment training. Um, when, um, when I was at RBIB, we had employment officers who went out, talked to employers about employing blind people. And when vacancies came up, they went out and talked to them again and and we got jobs for people. We've done away with all of that. Now we say, oh, we'll train you, we'll help you to write a CV, you've got to go and get the job yourself. Um, We've lost track of how to do the job. So many of our kids go to university and don't have a job, uh, will never have a job. 
because there's no, they haven't been job trained. They've got a university degree, but that's what they've got. Uh, and there's more to getting a job than just having a university degree. So uh, a lot of people who are blinded in their 40s and 50s never work because, you know, these social workers and other people seem to think that, well, you know, they're blind now, they've got a pension, they don't need to go to work. And uh, so it it is an indictment on the Australian system that uh, we've never really attacked employing of blind people in a a meaningful way. Uh, We've had little attempts every now and again, but nothing has ever been concrete enough to to last and uh, we had employment training when I was at RVIB, we were teaching people how to use computers, how to get jobs with computers. When the government had a scheme where you could get 13 weeks on on, uh, opportunities in in companies, we got people into jobs. Now they're not getting people into jobs again. It's it's all over the the shop and uh, unfortunately uh, blind people are the the sufferers. We've got huge amounts of money being spent in, in uh, well, Vision Australia as it is now, which is the combination of all the organisations on the eastern seaboard, and uh, they're doing less people training for people employment now than we've ever done. And uh, so there's real indictment against what's happening and has happened. And I take it back to the, the roots of when we made that decision to do away with the rehabilitation centre. If we'd have stuck with that. Maybe we would have got government support to support us, but that came later on. But governments were very strong on multi-disability, and the blind never really come to grips with that, and uh, we've never been able to work into that system properly. So when closing the rehab centre, we lost an opportunity. If we'd have persevered with that, I'm quite convinced that we could have made a major change in the lives of blind people in this country. David, I also uh, understand that in your time on the board, you took on industrial responsibilities and um, started to be seen as uh, the person on the other side of the industrial fence. Um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your role on that committee. I eventually was made chairman of the um, what was known as the Industrial Committee, which actually oversaw the workings of the workshops and the employment training, um, which there was none of really. There was employment placement, uh, and uh, as part of that, um, we had a monthly meeting, and the Blind Workers Union used to come and uh, we'd have discussions with them about issues of the day, and it became quite apparent um, while well, during this time that. Um, they saw me as the opposition. Um, uh, it was still leading back to the election, I believe, and uh, some of the people there, I believe, um, were quite uh, angry about the fact that I went ahead and threatened uh, their guy, their member, and the fact that he could have been exposed. But um, anyway, it went on, and uh, one of the things I proposed on the committee was that um, we look at um, opening a new f- another factory and that would be in North Melbourne. Because at that time there were a lot of uh, warehouses there that uh, were very solid and well built but uh, they were no longer being used. And uh, there was an opportunity to purchase one there at a very reasonable price. And there was a lot of light engineering and engineering businesses running at that time that were outsourcing their work because of various reasons. And we would have had an opportunity to do something there. And uh, 
I half convinced the board of the idea and uh, that they, you know, they it had to be further developed. So I raised it with the Blind Workers Union at one of these meetings and uh, they opposed it on the grounds that they reckoned that where they were now was the industrial home of the blind workers and all the rest of it. But anyway, we persisted in the thing and so they asked that I have a meeting with the workers that would be involved and these were the people who were coming from the western and northern suburbs coming through North Melbourne. And so I agreed to that and um, a couple of my committee members went along with me and uh, we went to this meeting and uh, I've never been so attacked in all my life that uh, I was trying to destroy the place. Uh, I didn't know what I was talking about, how would I know about the travel and all that. And the fact that I lived in the south and worked in the north of uh, Melbourne and went through Flinders Street and Spencer Street Station every day seemed to be immaterial to these people. And uh, they uh, really was very hostile and angry. And uh, But it was all about the fact that the Mowbray Street was their industrial home. Uh, this is where they'd been all their, always, and they didn't want to leave there. And what's Mowbray Street? Well, that's where the factory was. Okay. And, in in uh, Paran. In Paran. And... Uh, that and you know, I said to them there. I said, you know, they're saying how great it is. I said, yeah. I said, you work in the brush shop. It, the roof leaks in the winter time. It's freezing cold in the winter. It's boiling hot in the summer. It's wonderful, isn't it? You know, we could have a nice factory with good reason uh, walls, a nice building purpose built as a factory. But no, I couldn't get it through. And uh, but it was, it was just anger and uh, I don't know why they, but just had that up us and their mentality. And it took a few years to get past that. That. Um, We've got over that now. Those things are all behind us. And you still see that as a missed opportunity? Oh, it was a great missed opportunity. And uh, I would believe we would still have a workshop today, but it wouldn't be uh, the way this one was being run at the end here. It would have been one where people got proper wages because when we were in the food packaging, we were paid proper wages. We were doing proper industrial work and we got paid, and that would have brought proper industrial work there. But what was happening at RVIB, the trades were disappearing, like the bat making, brush making, uh, cane work were all disappearing and people were being put on assembly lines just putting little bits of plastic together. Uh, it, it just uh, it, People couldn't see that this was going to be such a debilitating thing for blind people and, uh, and uh, the, the workshop ended up being a sheltered workshop, whereas when we worked there in the RVIB factory, we worked for reasonable wages. I mean, we were... Uh, even the, when we were on piecework, we were earning better than the average wage. And um, but uh, you had to earn it, and, and you were doing work that was needed in the community. And that's what we could have been doing there. We would have changed the whole philosophy of the place. But it it uh, it just didn't happen. There wasn't enough vision on the board, and uh, blind people at that time were just so angry. I don't know why that they were, and they wouldn't. Um, who wouldn't come along with me. If they'd have come along with me then, I think we could have had something totally different. Uh, David, you mentioned to me that there um, there might have been a, a very significant member of the um, ACTU, or future significant member of the ACTU, involved in those discussions as well. Yes, the um, Stormont and Packers Union, uh, Bill Kelty, was their secretary at the time. And uh, he was, the Blind Workers Union was developing relations with him, and which I think was a good thing with that union. And um, they were having a, 
a luncheon meeting out at the Robert Hawke Hotel, which is in Brunswick. My office was only about 50 yards away from there, 50 metres nowadays. And uh, one of the uh, committee members suggested that, uh, oh, Dave is just down the road, why don't we get him to come up and have a chat? And Bill Kelty's statement to him, you don't socialise with the opposition. And uh, that was an opportunity missed. I think we could have mended some fences if we'd have done that away from the um, cut and thrust of the the bosses versus the workers meetings. If we could have met... Because these guys, in, in some ways, a lot of them I was still friends with. In, you know, the friendships have been strained a bit, but we still talked to one another, you know, we were civil. But um, it uh, just one of those things that uh, didn't happen and uh, I think it was an opportunity lost again. We lost a lot of good opportunities in those days to do something, I think. Mm. Um, and also, you, I understand that it was during that time that uh, the attitude of the board towards government funding started to shift as well. Well, it was a major shift. Uh, we, um, we accepted, um, well, they were running short on money and uh, they'd built that whole new complex out at Burwood. Um, they'd, what, 40 acres out there and they built a school out there. And uh, it became a bit more expensive to run than they expected, I imagine, and so they eventually went to the government and the state government at the time, I think it might have been the Balti government, um, gave them um, the funding for the teachers, only for the teachers, no for, not for teachers' aides or any of the support staff, and that was paid out of the education department to OBIB and um, the teachers were employed under the teachers award and so they got paid good wages probably for the first time too. But, uh, so that was the first move towards accepting government funding. The then president, Dr Bennett, was totally opposed to government funding. Um, he came from the hospital uh, industry and uh, knew that if the government paid you money they interfered in how you ran the organisation and had some say in it and he didn't want that, he believed that they had no right to stick their nose into what we were doing at RBIB and so he was opposed to it and uh, we went from there. You must remember at that time we were under what was known as the Hospital and Charities Act which was a an act of the Victorian Parliament um, which was a different act, of, uh, act to, for incorporation than what we have today. Today we've done away with that and we're all incorporated under the ASIC uh, system, federal government system. We um, moved on there um, and uh, that happened and then we eventually got some money for um, some of our employment services. Uh, we went to those sort of things but none of that happened until quite a significant time later. It amazes me that the charitable donations were strong enough and consistent enough to enable you to run uh, you know, a school, a factory, the other services that um, you were running? Well, there weren't any other services. Oh, it was just that? <laughs> yeah. Originally, there was only the school and the factory, and uh, the rehab came in, and that was probably the first move we made away from that. We had a very small talking book library. We had a Braille production unit, which was producing mostly for the school, and they did produce uh, some of those books went to the library later. But uh, no, that was all there was. And uh, RBIB was a very well-known charity in Victoria, a very popular charity. As I mentioned before, they had these auxiliaries right through the state, uh, women's auxiliaries that used to run their cake stalls and all sorts of ways of raising money, and significant amounts of money was made 
by that way. Bequests was a, always a big thing in RBIB. They, uh, for some unknown reason, they were very popular with people. Uh, I, I saw bequests when I was there where people, the only thing they had left was $100 in a bank account, but they owned a house, and they left that to the RBIB. There were a lot of people at that time who must have come to Australia pre-Second World War who had no family and had no um, no relatives here at all. They came from Europe or other parts of the world. So they just left their money to charitable organisations and uh, some of them were very successful. Others were just people who only owned a home. But And they left that, and that was significant in the income of RBIB. They were raising several million dollars every year from that sort of money. Uh, David, at this point, I think I'm going to both take you back and jump forward because you were telling us about your business, Chemibrush. Uh, that was something that you did over a 17-year period. So that's a, it's a big piece of your life. And um, I, you were telling me a little bit about how that all ended up, and I think it would be interesting to hear that story. Yeah, well, um, at the end, uh, when I was, um, after 17 years, with all the other things that I was doing, um, involved in, uh, I, I was finding that my business was struggling a bit, and um, so I took in a couple of partners who had similar type organisations, well exactly the same, but small as well as I was and um, they were smarter than I was and they ended up with the business and I ended up out of it. Uh, I sold out my name which was Chemibrush and virtually that's all I got for the business and um, I left the Chemibrush then and back in 1984. So you, you mentioned earlier that that was the time that your children were at school um, you managed to pay off the house, obviously, sort of um, create a bit of security for yourself and your family. Um, perhaps you could tell us a little bit about your time with your kids and your role as a father. Yeah, well, uh, I had a lot of time that I had to spend with my work because you're running your own business and it was on the other side of the city as well. Uh, so, you know, uh, I didn't spend a lot of time with the kids in the early days. My wife virtually raised the children. Just did that and um, successfully, I have to say, um, because they all always had a job. Um, that um, we we did have holidays. I took them to Darwin when they were little to meet my family. Um, we uh, we did other holidays to Queensland, South Australia. We took holidays, but then I bought a caravan down Phillip Island, and we spent a lot of time down there on weekends and during long weekends, particularly over the Christmas period. Uh, so we we did that, um, but the kids' education was more with Jess. She did that side of it. Um, I went along to teach a parent, teach them interviews, but that was virtually all I was involved in there. You told me that you bought a boat. So was that part of your holidays at the um, down at Phillip Island? Yes, we um, we actually had a tinny first, and uh, with a twelve foot uh, aluminium tinny I bought for the kids that we could go out fishing in. We had a ten horsepower motor on it. <clears throat> the motor blew up one day when we were out, just as we got back to the shore, actually, and uh, so. Uh, it was going to cost a significant amount of money to get the motor done up, and uh, but there was another boat for sale down there, which had been in a repaired yard for a number of, well, a couple of years actually. The bloke had never paid the bill, and it was going for a reasonable price, so I bought it, and uh, it had a 
it was a 16 foot fiberglass boat and we used that for fishing and the kids did a bit of water skiing with it as well so that was a good part for a while there we had a great time with that and uh, I uh, realise now just how expensive they were to run but <laughs> in those days and they still are uh, if you want a, want a way of spending money by a boat and um, at some stage from what you've said the RVIB found themselves with a ski club well they had a ski club and that was started by um, Mr Anderson who was on the board of RVIB was with the National Fitness Council and uh, through a chap called Brian Scott who was an instructor they took a number of us up to do skiing as a as a tryout sport for blind people this is where we had the rehab centre and uh, that was one of the things we found that um, young people young men particularly who'd been blinded were having great difficulty coming to grips with being blind having to use a cane to get around they used to get angry and throw it down and say when I could see I could have run down that street and they were angry. You took them skiing or something like that, something they'd never done before. We did canoeing, we did a number of things, but skiing was one I was involved in. And uh, they'd ski down a, a slope, they might fall over a couple of times, but they had a good time. And they'd done something, they achieved something that they'd never done before. And it was amazing how they'd come back and they'd pick up that cane and they'd just walk down the street. It, it changed their whole psychological way of thinking about their blindness. And... Um, it was a great thing, and it, and so many of them moved on from that point. That whether it was canoeing, rock climbing, all sorts of sports that uh, activities that the rehab people ran, and these were all untrained people, just ordinary people from the community uh, who had a a gen for doing outdoor things, and uh, that that was what we did in the rehab. So out of that, they formed a ski club, and. Uh, I was an inaugural member of that ski club uh, and um, it, it flourished and from there we used to go up to Borbor and we used to stay at a lodge up there called Junord which was uh, run by a number of people that were skiers and then a lodge became available and we convinced the RBIB to buy it for $30,000 and um, it was a lot of money but uh, it was a good investment. And the ski club ran that lodge. It, they did all the renovations on it. They did all the work on it. Um, they maintained it and they ran it for RBIB. Unfortunately, um, Vision Australia decided to sell it, uh, and, uh, which I would consider a subterfuge and uh, a bit of pack of lies that they used to sell it and they did it, but it was done and it's gone now. Did your children... Um get involved in skiing as well yes especially the two younger ones sylvia and ashley and eventually they became workers on the mountain every weekend they'd go up there and work uh, uh, one in the ski hire area and the other one was um, in the um, cafe um, hotel management part of it yeah they were up there every weekend during the summer during the winter and they enjoyed their skiing and working up there and after we have party, a family get together and some of the things come up about the ski lodges uh, there's a lot of good stories get told by them <laughs> Now, just when I wouldn't have believed it was possible to be involved in another thing during this period because it just sounds impossibly busy you mentioned to me that you're also involved in the Lions Club Yeah, I joined Lions Club, the Moorabbin Lions Club in 1970 um, uh, that was um, 
that happened by accident, really. I wanted a thing called a Banks Brailler. It was a, a device for writing Braille that came out, and it was run, by, it was owned by the Lions Clubs. And so I contacted the Moorabbin Lions Club. I found their phone number, and I rang a guy called Murray McIntosh. And he'd never heard of it, of course, because none of these blokes had heard of these things. And uh, anyway, he researched it and found out that it came from Geelong. So they got one for me, but he said, would you like to come along to a meeting? He said, and we'll present it to you. And I said, oh, yeah, that should be nice. So I went along, and they presented me with this Banks Brailler, which was, quite frankly, the most useless piece of equipment I've ever had. <laughs> <laughs> it was much better than I thought it would be. It, it actually brailed out on a strip of ribbon, you know, and if you can imagine, you you've got to braille something out, and then you've got to turn it, tear it off, turn it around, and then read it. I mean, oh, it didn't hopeless. make any sense at all. But anyway, it was a great thing for me in that time because it it opened an avenue to me that I'd never thought of. So I went to this meeting, and um, while I was at the meeting, uh, the one of the projects they were going to do was they were going to the St Kilda football ground, the Moorabbin ground, and they were going to hand out. Um, um, for uh, pamphlets for the blood bank and the president at the time who's still a very good friend of mine he's still alive too John Nancurvis told the story of his daughter who was born with um, I don't know what it was but something in her shoulder which meant it didn't develop but she also had to have a number of operations and a, a lot of blood donations her uh, blood uh, transfusions and he told this story about you know this this little girl who I got to know later on, um, and what it meant that the fact that she could have blood donations because her red corpuscles weren't working or something. Anyway, it impressed me so much that uh, I you know I just sat there listening to this guy talk about this. I thought this is incredible, you know. And, and they talked about a few other things they were doing to help people and uh, in their projects, and uh, and they were also going to run a, a fair down at uh, Warrigal Road for the Kingston Centre, which was mainly looking after old people in those days. And uh, these things were being talked about, and I'm just sitting there listening to this. I'd never heard anything like this before in my life, you know. And everything I'd been involved in had been more or less argumentative. <laughs> and uh, so after it was over, Murray drove me home, and I, I said, you know, I'm just so impressed with what you guys do. He said, would you like to come to another meeting? And I said, oh, could I? He said, I'm not a member. He said, no, that's all right. He said, you come along. So I went along to about three meetings. And uh, he, he said to me, would you like to join? I said, oh, I'd love to. <laughs> I was just so impressed with what they were doing and 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 the, the, the complete selflessness of it because they weren't getting anything out of it. They, there was no us and them mentality. It was just there's something needs to be done in the community, let's get together and do it. And uh, so I joined them and uh, I think that was the great release that I had that got me more open in my thinking about um, what we should be doing for blind people and that it just wasn't just centrally focused on one thing. I, I now had this other part of my life, which was showing me other ways of doing things and other ways of um, approaching issues. And I went on in the Lions Club and I became the district governor in 1979-80. I went to America, to Canada uh, for my inauguration. 
I met some great people there. I met wonderful people in the Lions organisation because my district that I had to look after had 69 clubs that I had to visit and they went from Caulfield to Orbost and all over the Mornington Peninsula and uh, I met lifelong friends that are still friends of mine today that uh, I met in those days and uh, as I said that, that changed a lot of my thinking. It, it gave me a broader way of looking at issues. Uh, it made me um, more conscious that there is another point of view, there is another way of doing things and uh, it, it helped in my growth as a person and I think it did help me in this when we established BCA. I was about to say it sounds like you're underlying the your, your thinking that um, drew you towards the idea of BCA and that your involvement in establishing BCA is the story of the next episode. So I think that's the point to finish uh, for this episode and um, we'll look at all those uh, issues around the development of BCA next time. Mm-hmm.